So, Mark. Yes? In this film, singing superstar Cher hands out toothpaste to children on Halloween. It's one of the worst things she does in this movie. Which is a high bar. Yeah, she's... She does a lot of bad stuff. She does. But I was kind of inspired by this moment, and I wanted to ask you, like, if you are not giving out food on Halloween, like, you have already let that duty go, what household item would you give to children who show up at your home? So, I was thinking about this, and I would like it to be a useful tool or item that I give them. So, what better than 18 uses in one Dr. Bronner's soap? (laughs) They can have their pick of the scents, maybe a nice lavender, the traditional peppermint, unscented. But if you dilute it to different strengths, you could do everything from washing your clothes to washing your car to washing yourself. So what's funny is, like, I'm imagining you having to give this pitch to every kid who's, like, (laughs) staring at you dumbfounded. Yes, every child must stand there while I read the entire bottle to them. Yeah. See, initially, I was like, what's a household thing that people would want? And I was like, well, these days, toilet paper is a hot commodity. But I was torn then because, one... Like, I want to just keep my toilet paper. And two, you are then arming children to go and TP places on Halloween. Yeah, I have a feeling they would use it at your house. Yeah. As the ones who gave them toilet paper. So maybe what I would do, you know, I collect historic political campaign buttons. Uh, who doesn't? So to get them, a lot of times you have to buy a lot on eBay. So like, there's one button that you want, but you wind up with ten. I have so many Hubert Humphrey for president buttons, Mark, that I think, given the number of kids that go through my neighborhood, I can hand out exclusively Humphrey 68 and McGovern 72 buttons. Ah, talk about a useless gift for a child. I mean, I do live in D.C. There's probably, like, one weird kid who would like it. Yeah, there'd be one weirdly pro- mcgovern child whoever he is he gets the rare mcgovern eagleton button everyone else gets mcgovern shriver ah yeah gotta save the good stuff for the smart kids exactly you know the short-lived things Uh, there's nothing like starting a podcast recording and then immediately having an allergy attack just here to make your life editing harder look it's that time of year you know it's new year's it's allergy season (laughs) ah yes classic allergy season at the turn of the year I have allergies all year. I am not exclusive. That's true. Yeah, I knew nothing about this movie. I found it because I googled New Year's movies for us to do. And, you know, obviously, like, the top one is, like, New Year's Eve. And then it's When Harry Met Sally. And this showed up pretty high on the list. And I kind of thought the whole movie was going to be set at New Year's. I also thought there were going to be mermaids in it. I genuinely thought that Cher was a mermaid in this movie and it was yes not not disappointing I, you at least I texted you before you watched it I was watching this movie and just kept checking the time being like when are they gonna like find out that Cher is a mermaid I know it was very it was I I genuinely don't understand how I knew this movie existed I knew Cher was in it and yet I still thought that it was actually about mermaids I mean, part of it is, this movie is from 1990, and, like, when we were growing up in the 90s, like, a large percentage of movies for kids were, like, here's a kind of famous person, and, like, here's the weirdly magical thing that's going on with them. Like, we're all watching, like, Flubber or Space Jam or whatever. Like, Cher playing a mermaid would have fit in with the kind of stuff we were pulling at Blockbuster. It really does fit into that track, and 
I was not expecting her moonstruck serious actress track. I mean, look, should we have learned anything more about the movie before putting it on the schedule? Maybe. I'm not mad to have watched it, but it was a very strange viewing experience. It was. I'm glad I was prepared, I have to say, but I was still a little disappointed. Yeah, I was just constantly waiting. (laughs) Yeah, that's got to be very wild. But now that we're diving into it and starting off strong with both of our disappointment, which I think it's time we should start the episode. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Why is this movie called Mermaids? And And does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? Why isn't Cher... In a movie where she plays a mermaid, because that it would be feels great. Obvious. And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one scene flirtation, we'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, as we have said repeatedly, we are taking a look at Richard Benjamin's 1990 adaptation of Patty Dan's coming of age novel, Mermaids. I genuinely could not tell you why mermaids. Yeah. Look, it's obviously a metaphor. Because why else would you call it mermaids? But I am kind of at a loss as to why. I mean, the little girl likes to swim. Young Christina Ricci. In her first appearance. She's so little in this. But she's only like three years away from playing Wednesday. Actually, Adam's Family is the next year. It can't be. Yeah, Adam's Family Values is 93. Yeah, I haven't watched the original in so long. I'm picturing her in Family Values. But... Yeah, no, Christina Ricci's good in this i mean she's good in everything i've seen her in yeah she won a a young artist award for this movie what a cast honestly winona ryder Cher, and christina ricci and bob hoskins and bob hoskins who is incredible in this movie oh i mean so good so i think we've established that the film mermaids is not about mermaids um it is about this all-female family uh Cher and her daughters played by winona ryder and Christina Ricci, and they travel frequently. I think at some point, Charlotte Winona Ryder's character says they've moved 17 times, and they typically move whenever one of Cher's relationships ends. So there's a lot of tumult going on there. They're kind of always the new people in town. They never quite fit in. And this movie is about them coming to a little town in Massachusetts where... Uh, Cher starts up a relationship with Bob Hoskins, who is, like, a local shoe salesman. And Charlotte has her, like, sexual awakening in the form of a handyman played by Michael Schuffling. I gotta say, I cannot imagine spending as much time in the car as they do. And I really don't mind long road trips. I also have to say, Cher's hair looked like Linda Belcher's throughout most of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's not as big as her Moonstruck hair. It's not as big, but it's it's poofed. It is. This, we should also mention, is Cher's first movie since 1987, which is the year that she's in Suspect, The Witches of Eastwick, and Moonstruck, and then wins the Oscar for Moonstruck. She goes then three years without appearing in another movie. Has she been in movies since then? So, she doesn't star in another movie for six years. She's the lead then of Faithful. And that's kind of the last movie that she's the lead of. Like, you know, she crops up every once in a while. She's, like, 
build alongside Christina Aguilera in burlesque, of course. Uh, of course. How could I forget? And then, like, you know, she'll show up to like, basically, like, cameo in, like, Mamma Mia 2. But, yeah, she has this kind of short-lived star career. She spends a decent chunk of the first half of the 90s doing infomercials. In the next few minutes, you're going to hear about two brand-new hair care products that are so revolutionary and unbelievable, they'll make a real difference in the way your hair looks and feels. And an offer from Lori Davis that is so amazing, I can't believe it myself. Which she later admitted was a mistake. She's like, yeah, that squandered a lot of my goodwill. Like, it made me kind of a joke, and it made it harder to get film roles. It's just kind of weird. And part of it, too, is, like, Cher's career is so long as a musician, and the film career goes on top of that, that she has, like, multiple periods of reclamation, like, four or five times. I mean, she's famous for having, like, six comeback tours. She's the queen of reinvention. frankly, all valid. Every time. She is truly one of the most impressive artists out there. Absolutely. Cher is kind of the person who puts this movie together. She's aware of the novel before it's published and is part of the crew, like, optioning it to get made as a movie. And then she's pretty influential on the production side, in part fighting with both Lassie Hallstrom and Frank Oz, who both come incredibly close to directing this movie. Frank Oz actually directs it for like two weeks. And then she's also like involved in casting and a lot of the the major decisions there. I mean, I feel like at this point in her career, Cher gets what Cher wants. Well, that is the story of this movie, Cher getting what she wanted. Yes. So it was supposed to be the English language debut of Lasse Hallstrom, the like Swedish dramedy director. But he left the project because he and Cher could not get along about what it should look like. And then they hired Frank Oz. And, like, Lasse Hallstrom was, like, weeks out from starting. Like, they were close to going. And then, officially, they delayed the start because of Cher's health. That's what Orion Pictures said. But, like, every report is Cher and Lasse Hallstrom could not get along. So then they hire Frank Oz. Frank Oz actually starts shooting the movie. But the two of them cannot get along either on how to shoot it. Apparently, Frank Oz also, like, had some arguments with Winona Ryder pretty regularly. But... That comes on in a bit, because at first, Winona Ryder's not attached. They cast Emma Lloyd as Charlotte. And, like, when they're about to go on the Hallstrom version, Cher starts complaining that Emma Lloyd, who is blonde, does not look plausible as a daughter of Cher. So when Lassie Hallstrom gets fired, then Emma Lloyd gets fired a little bit after that. And they cast Winona Ryder off of Heathers. Emma Lloyd then sues Orion Pictures for breach of contract and wins almost half a million dollars. Oh my god. Good for her. <laughs> when you go deep onto Emma Lloyd, you're pretty clearly looking at the career of a person who, like, keeps not being in movies. Yeah. Where, like, she'll just pass on something. Like, she turned down being the lead in Pretty Woman because she had committed to mermaids. Oh, that's gotta hurt. Yeah. Oh, that's painful. So, like, her whole career is stuff like that happening. This poor woman. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if Pretty Woman would have been a good movie without Julia Roberts. That's the thing. Like, so much of the magic of Pretty Woman is Julia Roberts' performance. Like, once you put a different person in that role, it's just a different movie. Right. I feel like it would be sadder without Julia Roberts. I don't know if anyone could capture the, like, full circle. I think that's definitely true. Yeah. Speaking of sadder, I did read that Frank Oz, I think, wanted to make this, like, super dark and have Charlotte commit suicide in it. Which is crazy. Which is just... It's... Not that kind of movie, bud. Right. And, like, presumably there are other 
substantial changes that would be involved in that version. The Lassie Hallstrom version was also supposed to be a decent bit darker. And I think that's part of what Cher was pushing against. She wanted something that was lighter. She talked a lot about merging the novel with like a tribute to her own mother. And you can imagine how, to a certain degree, that pushes it to be... It's not a comedy, but definitely a lighter movie. I also have to say, for someone whose main thing is that she's obsessed with Catholicism, I can't really picture suicide fitting that characterization. Because she is like... Catholic, for at least the beginning of this movie. One of my favorite moments is when she's praying and Cher walks down the hallway and just goes, we're Jewish, and then keeps walking. I mean, I like that acknowledgement that it's like this weird fixation of like a teenager that is like very intense, but also can be like swapped out for now I'm really into Greek mythology. Yeah, it's not really a religion to her as much as just her fandom. It's like a fandom. (laughs) Yeah. I love that we both She's going to read there. the lives of the saints and, like, effectively collect her action figures. She's going to start writing some fanfic. We call that apocrypha. I mean, isn't the whole Bible just fanfic of other parts of the Bible? <laughs> so, I feel like this movie, I'm really curious what the book is like. Yeah. I had a hard time finding out. I read a couple of interviews with Patty Dan. In part, there are a bunch on the internet because she wrote a sequel in 2013 called Starfish. But the problem is that inevitably, whenever someone starts talking about mermaids in an interview with her, they just start talking about the fact that Cher was in the movie. And so, like, it becomes an interview about the movie. And, like, that's fine. I learned some stuff about the movie. But, yeah, I don't have a, feel like I have a strong sense of, like, what the deal is with the book. It, I did not read it like I did Congo. Didn't you start reading Congo before we recorded? Or did you read all of Congo between deciding and recording? Correct, yes. I read Congo in its entirety to prepare for our episode. Oh my god. That book is not short. No, but you know, it's Crichton. It doesn't take that long. That Yeah, his books are fast reads. Wow. I should reread Congo. Even the ones that like take me a while. Like, when I read The Great Train Robbery in high school, that took me a while to read. Every time I was reading pages of it, it went quickly. It just put me to sleep every time. I never read that one. I, was su- I had a big Michael it's all right. Crichton phase. I didn't even dislike it. It just put me to sleep. I was really into Jurassic Park and Andromeda Strain. And then I tried to read The Rising Sun and I was, I finished it because back then I was very like adamant on finishing. But even as It's also, again, it's a fast read. As a high schooler, just like, this is super racist. Oh, yes. This is just racism. But like every Michael Crichton book in the 90s, it did get adapted into a movie. Oh, that's rough. I'm honestly surprised there has been, like, one day on Twitter where someone tweets about how racist The Rising Sun is and then everyone just cancels Crichton for 30 minutes. Yeah, it's probably going to happen at some point. Wow, the internet. It moves fast. Yeah, it's the weird thing of, like, the Crichton books, and Rising Sun fits into this, too. Like, Jurassic Park is a weird outlier because, like, scenes of Jeff Goldblum in the movie notwithstanding, like, Jurassic Park is, like, the one of his books that's not weirdly horny. Right. It's just mostly science. All of the science was proven incorrect. But, like, all of the other books have, like, weird sexual energy to them. Andromeda Strain doesn't have as much of that because it's one of his classic just all-men books. That's true. Yeah. I remember the last Crichton that I read in terms of, like, release, I read Pirate Latitudes, which was his first posthumous book. Where they just, like, went on his computer and they're like, what notes can we flesh out into a book and sell a Michael Crichton novel? 
And this was in high school, so it's like the peak of my Pirates of the Caribbean fandom. So I'm like, hell yes, I'll read Michael Crichton talking about pirates. And that book has a lot of the weird sex stuff. And I kind of wonder in retrospect if they're like, there's, there's not enough book here, but we can put some of his weird like <laughs> sex ideas in and that'll pad it out for a hardcover. What an interesting guy. Who also just had millions and millions of dollars aside from his books because he created ER. Oh my god. I can't imagine. He also did Westworld. Yeah, he directed the film Westworld. Yeah, which was a film first, apparently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I forgot that he uh, was, like, pro-smoking. Like, he didn't believe in the effects of secondhand smoke. Wait, I didn't notice. Wasn't he a doctor? It says, he held a contrarian position on various scientific issues, such as climate change, the health risks of secondhand smoke, and the search for alien life. I mean, we'll set the search for alien life aside. The other two, that's not a contrarian opinion. That's just being wrong. He was wrong about those things. Are it's you like, surprised? I hold a contrarian opinion on gravity. <laughs> I just, I'm just wrong then. I mean, I feel like they didn't realize how bad secondhand smoke was for you until much later than you would think after they realized that smoking is bad for you? Yes, but, you know, it was still enough in his lifetime that you and I cannot remember a period where we didn't know. I mean, it is kind of weird, just the idea of indoor smoking still. Like, I cannot wrap my head around it. Yeah, that I was watching The Late Shift the other night, which is the HBO movie about the fight between... David Letterman and Jay Leno for The Tonight Show that was made like three years after Leno got the show. Wow. Yeah, you know, it's kind of good. And John Michael Higgins plays Dave Letterman. He's amazing in it. And he is just constantly chomping on the biggest cigars I've ever seen in my life inside in meetings. And I'm like, people put up with that in the 90s? Yeah. I mean, smoking sections in restaurants, I remember. Right, yeah. A hilarious thing that we used to do where we'd say, oh, we'll put all the people who are smoking in one half of the room and the other people in the other half, and there will not be a wall between them. And that'll work. Yeah, that'll help. There's no such thing as air movement. Wow. Okay, we've strayed pretty far from the subject. Should we get back to talking about the romance of mermaids? Okay, so Mermaids was released on December 14th, 1990 by Orion Pictures, which is really on its last legs, even though they're about to win Best Picture for Silence of the Lambs. It opened in sixth place with $3.5 million, so it didn't do amazingly at the box office. Like, it turned a profit. They made $35 million against a $20 million budget. It was pretty well regarded by critics, a lot of whom mentioned the fact that they were like, we did not expect this movie to be good because its production was such a nightmare. Set the bar low in production. Yeah, worked out well for mermaids. And the thing is, like, you know, it opens in 6th in December, but it's a pretty competitive box office. So number one is Home Alone in its fifth week. Oh, God. Because that movie was a juggernaut. Yeah. Everyone loves it. Aren't they redoing it? It's already out. Oh. They made a, a sixth Home Alone movie that came out on Disney Plus this year. And it looks like it's basically Home Alone, but with Nerf guns, which seems less fun. Like, part of the appeal of Home Alone is how ludicrously violent it is. It's like, these people should be dead. Right. Mark, have you seen, how many Home Alone sequels have you seen? I think just one and two. Yeah, me too. Uh, the two Macaulay Culkin ones. Yeah. I mean, even the second one kind of slips. Yeah, the like, 
action pieces are still good, but the plot is a real reach. Yeah. And also, it's the kind of it's the kind of thing where like once you're doing it a second time, you can no longer have faith in the parents. Right. That's when you kind of want someone to step in because People should not leave their child behind twice. Well, no, in the second one, it's that Kevin, like, gets on the wrong plane or something, which is a very pre-9-11 issue. (laughs) Yeah, that does not happen anymore. I'm pretty sure that's what happens. I haven't seen Home Alone 2 in a while, because Home Alone 1, his family's in Paris. Home Alone 2, they're in Florida, and he's in New York. Right. It is funny how getting onto planes when you have to, like, walk onto the plane and they don't have a jet bridge, how they station four people still between the gate and the plane to make sure you don't walk onto the wrong one. I've only done that since 9-11 at, like, a really tiny airport. I mean, I've done it at Dulles, like, four times. Really? Yeah, the United Commuter Area, which is, like, Terminal A, but you go down into what feels like a basement, even though it's on the ground level. I'm surprised you haven't seems, flown seems out gross. of there. Yeah, it's not fun. I don't fly out of Dulles because it's a pain to get there. Yeah, it's awful. But sometimes it's also like $200 cheaper. Uh, anyway, the rest of the top five, we have Look Who's Talking to Edward Scissorhands, which opened the week before. So Winona Ryder is in two movies out within a week of each other. Dances with Wolves and then Misery. Uh, speaking of Winona Ryder, Orion campaigned to this movie for Oscars. The only place it really picked up was Winona Ryder got a decent amount of awards attention in supporting actress, which to me is insane. I think she's clearly the lead of this movie. I mean, if you give voiceover for a solid 25% of the movie, I feel like you're a lead. I would argue she is the lead of the movie. Yeah, I don't even know if it's a co-lead situation. Yeah, she was nominated for the Golden Globe, and she won the NBR Award for Best Supporting Actress. And I'm just like, why are you in these categories? This is a level of category fraud that rivals the Danish girl, as far as I'm concerned. If you think about it, Cher's story exists mostly to support Charlotte. Right. Making her, by definition, a supporting actress. Look, I agree with you. And I am sure that when we roll around to our Oscars episode, I will have more opinions on category fraud. I don't know of anyone's that I'm especially concerned about this year, but it always happens. There will be someone. Yeah, I was pleased that Focus Features is doing the right thing and only campaigning the kid from Belfast in lead and everybody else is supporting. I still need to see that as of recording. It's yeah, been it's out probably like going to be a the week. Best Picture nominee, so yeah. you got to do it for us. I know. Never expected it to be good, honestly. Look, Kenneth Branagh has directed some really good stuff and he has directed some really bad stuff. Yeah, I've kind of lost faith in him, so it's always a surprise when things are more than just like, eh. Here's the thing. It cannot be as bad as Artemis Fowl. It cannot be as bad as Artemis Fowl. And I feel like it can't be as just dull as his other movies have been. It's gotta be, like, the hope is, like, can it be better than Thor? When was his last, like, universally considered good movie? Oh, man, that's a a good question. So, like, because Brano's recent movies, uh, in the past decade, he had Artemis Fowl, Murder on the Orient Express, which made a crap ton of money and has the most cursed sequel on the planet. All is True, which is his, like, old man Shakespeare movie that was beloved by the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards. The live-action Cinderella. He made a Jack Ryan movie. Thor. Um, I feel like it's just his Shakespeare's, isn't it? It's Has He Had a Hit. Yikes, you know, this is this is a dire filmography when you really look at it. Yeah, why is he you know, famous? 
because he had this run of the Shakespeare adaptations in the late 80s and the early 90s, especially like Henry V was such a big hit where Branagh was double nominated for actor and director. And that was such a like, holy cow, look at this guy. Okay. And he hasn't really had, I mean, like, he hasn't really had something on the same level since then. I mean, like, he's had some hits. Much Ado About Nothing was really well regarded. I mean, his Hamlet's a classic. So, you know, that's why. But it is mostly from the Shakespeare stuff. And when you really look at his filmography, you're like, ah, he hasn't really hit it, like, since Hamlet. Which is kind of sad. Yeah. I love him as a performer. I always think he's fun on screen. Even when he's doing something weird. Like, I love Branagh in Tenet, where he's playing, like, a Russian mobster. And he's, like, going for it. Okay, well, now I'm interested in Tenet. Mark, you should watch Tenet. Tenet rules. It is a weird movie, and people tried to say it was bad because it didn't make any sense, when, I would argue, a key part of Tenet is the fact that it does not make any sense. Doesn't count if it's a choice, I guess. That's right. Tenet rules. I love Tenet. Come over and we'll watch We'll watch it. I have the 4K. Oh my god. So, Mermaids. Okay, so Mermaids. As we said, it's this sort of December awards release by Orion. It's kind of funny. You wonder if Orion knew how their respective movies were going to turn out, if they would have flipped releasing Mermaids in December and Silence of the Lambs in February. I mean, I assume they would have. Like we said, it does okay. There's some awards attention for Winona Ryder. Christina Ricci wins the Young Artist Award. My favorite sort of factoid that I found was that, you know, in the most 1990 thing possible, to promote the movie, Orion sponsored mall takeovers in 25 different cities. What a sentence. The fact that it's Orion in particular just makes it even better. It makes it even more 1990. Yeah, so at all these malls, they had 1963-themed events, which I assume did not include, like, TV coverage of the Kennedy assassination, which does feature in this movie. Features prominently. Too prominently. I weirdly did not think it was going to happen when the movie established it was in 63. But as soon as it was like Thanksgiving time and somebody came into a room crying, my fiance was like, wait, what's going on? And I said, Kennedy's been shot. And that's like a solid 10 minutes of just like adults reacting. Right. And that's where I think this is a pretty good movie. But I think that's where it occasionally gets lost and, like, the period trapping isn't serving it as well because it really just needs to be a story about this family. And if you want that story to be set in 1963, that's fine. But if you're going to do, like, a whole deal about, like, the Kennedy assassination, and I get that it's Massachusetts, the problem is this family is not from Massachusetts, so they don't have that connection. And they never do anything with Winona Ryder and, like, the Catholic president thing, which would also be a connection they could make. So it's just, like, going on, but it doesn't really matter at all. Except that, like, that day Joe is upset and kisses Charlotte. I think this movie could use less being set in 1963 as the focus. Yeah, it needs to just be the story of the family. Because whenever it's doing that, I think it does it really well, in large part thanks to the performances. Like, all four of the central performances, including Christina Ricci, who, like, is very much a child. They're all doing a great job. They are. It's very well acted. Despite having zero mermaids. I mean, the biggest sin this movie made for me, zero mermaids, besides Cher dressing like a pretty crappy mermaid for New Year's. If this were a movie about a mermaid and Cher looked like that, I'd be like, yeah, this is what movies looked like when we were growing up. Like, we had no expectations of, like, really good visual effects. We would go with it. 
But once it's just like a costume, then I'm like, why is this the name of the movie? Why is this on the poster? Why is this like the close-up on the like soundtrack album? Why is Cher not a mermaid? I thought from the article about New Year's Eve movies that I read that this was going to be a movie entirely set at New Year's in which mermaid Cher had to help Christina Ricci and Winona Ryder deal with growing up. That is what you told me to expect as well. Yes, it is possible I made that up. It sounds like it. It's on a poster. Wow. Okay, so should we get into the romance of this movie? We might as well. It's the whole movie. It's the whole movie. All right, so every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to help guide conversation. So, Will, what is point number one? Okay, so at the very beginning of the movie, the Flax family is living in Oklahoma, but they abandon Oklahoma pretty much immediately because the man that Cher has been seeing says that he's going to go on vacation with another woman, that other woman being his wife. So Cher packs up and they move to a small town in Massachusetts. Basically because she sees like a wanted ad for a secretary for a lawyer. Yeah. I don't know how far And she is also like clearly away. going there to be like, and maybe I'll like get together with this lawyer guy. Oh, of course. Like, she's annoyed to learn that he is already with a woman when she gets there on her first day. Like, she is someone who is gunning for the inappropriate workplace conduct. Yes, exactly. It is 1963, so she's in the right time for it. Oh, that's so sad. So, our first point really is when our two leads, or our lead and the supporting character played by Cher, meet the men with whom they will have romantic relationships throughout this movie. Um, Again, none of these four people is a mermaid. Imagine if the twist was Bob Hoskins was a mermaid the whole time. Would have been great! A perfect film. You know what? We have seen a movie with a mermaid in Massachusetts because that is where Daryl Hannah came from in Splash. Well. It can be done. She didn't come from Massachusetts, did she? Off the coast of Massachusetts, yeah. I thought she came from that, like, tropical island and then followed him. No, no, no. They shot it on a tropical island, but in the movie... Tom Hanks is at the wedding, he gets drunk, he leaves, he drives out to, like, the Cape, takes a boat, oh, and then winds up on the island. right. Yeah. Weird. And then he leaves his wallet, and she <laughs> uses his driver's license to find him at Liberty Island, where he doesn't live. That's right. Okay. Now I remember. I'm just saying, Daryl Hannah could walk out of the ocean there with, like, Disney having digitally added more hair to cover her butt. Computers may have gone too far. You know about that, right? Yes, I did. I haven't checked. Like, maybe they went back on it, like, with The Simpsons. But at least for a time, Disney digitally added more hair to cover Daryl Hannah's button splash. Oh, my God. Okay, so Cher goes to the shoe store with her daughter. Yes. Charlotte has been resisting getting new shoes. She's been wearing, like, her dad's old boots because she's convinced herself that her dad is going to come back one day, which he is not. Yeah, so... Both of their dads, the two daughters' dads, I think sound like they're one-night stands. Or I guess, no, Cher was married to Charlotte's father, but he left the night Charlotte was born. Yeah, he pulled a, he pulled a Jimmy from New York, New York. Right. But Christina Ricci's dad. I'm trying to think through the timeline. Could he be Jimmy from New York, New York? Cause I mean. Char- this is 1963. It's possible. It would have had is to Is been... Cher Liza Minnelli, is what I'm asking. Uh, no. Liza would never let her hair get that long. Not by 63. No, that's true. 
So anyway, as we said, uh, they go to the shoe store, which is run by the great Bob Hoskins, two years after Roger Rabbit. So, who are you ladies from? I used to live in South Dakota myself. Can you imagine? Trying to keep kosher in South Dakota. I can't imagine trying to keep kosher anywhere. I love that he's giving the same, like, heightened yet credible performance he gave when he was acting alongside a cartoon bunny. But it's, like, it's heightened when he's with the kids, but the rest of the time, it's, like, so soulful. Like, he's such a kind and, like, sweet man who just, like, wants a nice life, but is also, like, very excited at the prospect of having sex with Cher. Yes. I mean, who wouldn't be? I think it's, like, a really good performance. It's very good. I just, like, when he, like, rubs his hands all over his face in exasperation and stuff like he does when he's reacting to Roger. He's so good. The one true Mario Mario, Bob Hoskins. So, they meet at the store. She immediately starts flirting, which drives Charlotte crazy. They do have another meeting at, like, back-to-school night or something. I'm not 100% clear why he's there, because he doesn't have kids. Yeah, it must be, like, a community event. It was weird why he was there. There's a nice interaction where, like, they're clearly flirting with each other, and he says, uh, I try not to get involved with women when the World Series is about to start. He's a ridiculous man, and I love him. He's just a sweet guy. So, while this is happening, as they move into their house, which is next door to a convent... The convent handyman comes and introduces himself, and Charlotte, the 15-year-old, falls in love immediately with this hot 26-year-old named Joe. I mean, to be clear, Michael Shuffling was a literal GQ model. Yes. He is quite handsome. He's the love interest in 16 Candles, the guy that Molly Ringwald is into. Oh, right. I have not seen that yet. But yeah, she has, like, as they've been coming in, been praying not to fall in love. She wants to make sure she can remain pure. There's one... <laughs> she has a lot of really good, weird prayers in this. I, I wrote down, please God, don't let me fall in love and want to do disgusting things. She has, like, the weirdest brain. Yeah, well, I think she's had a weird upbringing, too. That is true. You know, like, she has moved 17 times in, like, maximum 17 years. And she has eaten very weirdly because Cher will only make hors d'oeuvres for meals. I assume as a sign of her, like, general fear of permanence. Like, don't make a nice elaborate meal that people are going to sit down to for a while. Don't stay anywhere for too long. Yeah, everything must be quick in Cher's life. Mark, I have a question for you. Yes. Does anyone else ride the school bus? Yes, she's just the first stop. Oh, okay. Because I wondered when... Charlotte decides to stop riding the bus because she's having impure thoughts about Joe. Because in addition to being the convent handyman, he's also the bus driver. I was like, is he now driving an empty bus? Or does he not have to do it if she doesn't ride it? No, the first time he picks her up, they have their like one-on-one combo. But other kids do start showing up on the bus. I assume the bus also sleeps at the convent, maybe? So she's the first one at the bus stop. I like to think he sleeps in the bell tower. Like, he doesn't have a room. He just sleeps up there. He's a bit of a quasi Waiting for a vertigo situation. Rigging the bells. Tending the gardens. Driving the school bus. Talking to the gargoyles. What a weird dude. Yeah. He's he's a very weird dude. There's also, like, rumors around town about Joe because his girlfriend left town very suddenly with her family. And so some people are like, "Mm, I bet there's a little Joe Jr. going on around. And Joe's girlfriend's family, like left quickly because they didn't want to have the shame of their unwed daughter being being pregnant. Which, believable, 
based off of the course yes. of events in this film. Yes. Joe does claim that the family just moved. Yes. And I think the movie, like, the movie believes him. Right. I don't know if I do. Yeah, Joe does not seem the most responsible dude. And, like, just in general, if you're in your 20s, don't make out with teenagers. Yeah, that's good advice for everyone. It's a good rule of thumb for all of us. So, I think this brings us to point two. Cher has invited Bob Hoskins over for breakfast. This is amazing. Breakfast is, of course, hors d'oeuvres. Yeah, breakfast is like bagel bites, essentially. And then she basically is just like, so you're here to have sex, right? Yeah, once the kids leave, Hoskins is like, so where do you want to go today? She's like, oh, I don't want to go anywhere. Do you want to go somewhere? And Hoskins is like, not really? Like, he clearly is like, well, if sex is on the table, I'll stick around. And then just like smash cut to share lighting a cigarette in bed. There's just such a good moment of him, like, with his face in his hands. Like, he literally has to hold himself up. Like, yeah, I could stay. Yeah. Oh, he's so cute. So that's their first date. Charlotte is gone because it's, you know, around the end of the first week of school or whatever. And on the bus, she was asking Joe, like, so what do you like to do on your weekends around here? And I would say this is the moment that I like Joe the best. Because this is where he is clearly aware that she's flirting with him. And he has no interest in it and is doing his darndest not to invite her along to whatever he's going to do. But boy, does she make it happen. Right. Like, every time he says something he does, like, go fishing. And she's like, oh, I'd love to go fishing. He's like, I go really early in the morning. Like, he keeps trying to come up with reasons that she would not want to go along. And yet, he fails. So he comes and picks her up to go fishing. And there are a lot of, like, great, weird, like, Charlotte is a teenager swooning over a dude she doesn't actually know moments, which I think this movie does well, like the obsession that is based on nothing. I'll make real sandwiches, big ones a man can sink his teeth into and use both hands to hold them. He's late. Oh God, please don't let him forget. Be patient, Charlotte. Patient as St. Bridget, lady-in-waiting to Queen Blanche of Namur. Right, the amount that she talks because she's nervous. But there's also the stuff of like, you know, he takes a drink out of his thermos, passes it over to her. And so then she's drinking out of his thermos. And in voiceover, she's like, our lips are touching because they drank out of the same cup. That was one of my favorite moments. It's so good. And then like later on, like they're getting in the boat and he helps her get in the boat. And she like swoons against him and like kind of licks his jacket. Oh, it's so much. It's so funny. So they have this like weird little date and she clearly... When he drops her off at the end, she's, like, going for a kiss, and he is just not having it. No, because he's, like, in his mid-20s, and she is a sophomore or junior in high school. Yeah, like, at her oldest, she's 17. According to Wikipedia, she is 15, and he is 26. He's definitely 26. I definitely caught that. I never caught an age for her. Yeah. Regardless, I do not care for it. No. So, she's, like, trying to go for a kiss. He... Doesn't go for it. And then after that, she stops riding the bus because she wants to avoid having impure thoughts. Right. Because of the whole super Catholic thing. Super Catholic, but of course not Catholic at all and like just kind of making it up. She's obsessed with the fact that they live next to a convent. She wants to be a nun and is like, wants to ask him if the nuns wear their underwear in the shower because she feels like she's sinning just by being naked. Right, but that also, again, I think gets at sort of, like, just her weird sexual confusion, and, like, that's all that she's thinking about. And it's, like, confusion in the sense that, like, she is feeling all these things, 
and genuinely does not understand them to the point that like she does not really understand how sex works. No, Rachel has never, which I just remembered as Cher's name in the movie, Rachel has never explained sex in any sense to her daughter. So she is, like, feeling these things, having what she describes as impure thoughts, and, like, doesn't know what to do with them, and frankly, like, doesn't even really know what she wants to avoid doing. So she's like, well, then I should do nothing. That's a good way of phrasing it. She doesn't know what she is trying to avoid. Yeah. And so instead, she, like, just takes all these extreme positions, like, I can't ride the bus because the bus driver is too sexy. Right. So she walks to school. But at the same time, Bob Hoskins is getting to know the kids better. And again, just the sweetest dude, where, like, sometimes they'll stay in town at Bob Hoskins' place instead of, like, going out into the wilderness where they live. There's the really lovely scene where Hoskins and the girls, like, decorate one whole room as like an undersea thing like they paint the walls they put on these fish on it like it's it's really very nice he's just a good dude he's just a very nice guy and this kind of gets us at point number three then right so (laughs) kennedy is assassinated (laughs) yeah so as we all know when you make a movie set in the fall of 1963 john f kennedy is gonna bite the dust so jfk is dead and everyone is emotional And somehow this leads to Charlotte and Joe kissing at a clock tower. Yeah, because what happens is, so, like, yeah, like, school just, like, lets out. People are standing in the streets, like, watching TVs or listening to the radios in stores. And the cloister bells are ringing, which, like, kind of makes sense. You know, it's Massachusetts in 1963. You got a convent in town. Like, ring the bells because John F. Kennedy's been shot. And Charlotte goes up the bell tower and finds Joe there. Like, he's the one ringing the bell and just, like, sobbing as he does so. And so... She just goes up to him and starts kissing him. And there's a great, this is a great moment. You know, Richard Benjamin is mostly a comedy director. Like, I feel like this is like his least comedic movie. But there are moments that are just hilarious. Like when Charlotte and Joe kiss for the first time and it keeps doing these zooms on all the statues of saints staring at her. It's so good. It's great. Like, that shot, that sequence is funnier than some entire comedy films he has made. It is so good. And I love this because she immediately thinks that she is pregnant. Right, yeah. Uh, She decides she's pregnant. There's this great line in the voiceover of, everyone's crying about the president. I've just turned into a fallen woman and no one's even noticed. I cannot believe she goes to the doctor. Has your mother ever talked to you about sex? Please, God, I want to die. Yeah, all the time. So you know how babies are conceived. Oh, yeah. Uh, We talk about everything. She's a wonderful mother. Then why did you think you were pregnant? You're still a virgin. I want to die now, right now. Well, she, like, it's again, she's picked up enough to know that's what you do when you're pregnant. You have to go see a doctor. But she goes to the doctor, and the doctor takes one look at her, and it goes, like, come meet in my office. And she thinks she's gonna, like, get in trouble for having sex. And he's like, you have not had sex and clearly do not understand what it is. It's so funny. It's, like, deeply awkward, and you wish that, like, someone kinder were having this conversation with her. Such as a trusted parental figure. Right. Meanwhile... Bob Hoskins and Cher have been having some fights. We mentioned when they decorate the whole room, like it's this undersea place and they're like playing fish games. Cher gets really mad at him then 
she's like, you know, we can have our thing, but like, don't use my kids to try to get at me. And Hawkins is like, I'm not using your kids to try to get at you. I like your kids and I want to spend time with them because I care about them in part because I care about you. Like she's so used to just dropping everything and running that she doesn't recognize that like, this is what would happen as a relationship progressed. Yeah. She also just like assumes the worst of all men. Yes, absolutely. One of the other big things that happens around this sequence is Charlotte, following the discovery that she is not pregnant in the midst of the fighting, just decides to run away. And she takes a car and drives until she runs out of gas and just winds up at the home of this very nice family in Connecticut where she makes up an entire false backstory for herself and just hangs out there until Bob Hoskins can come and track her down. But Hoskins and Cher have a big fight about that where, like, Hoskins is telling Cher, like, you're the one who taught her to run from her problems. And Cher gets really upset about, about that. And Bob Hoskins is correct. Yeah, he's right. Like, improbably in this movie, like, not in a bad way, but just because he's not the focus of the story, Bob Hoskins gets to be the man who is just basically always right. Yeah, he's just, like, a smart, nice dude. And it doesn't feel obnoxious because he's not really obnoxious with it. He just, like, wants good things for everybody. And the other characters aren't always right because they are the focus and they get to be more complex than he does. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. Man, Hoskins, just a, just a great dude. I think it's going to be obvious who we date in this movie. Yeah. So I think this brings us to the next point. Oh, I forgot. So she runs away while she still thinks she's pregnant. Oh, Because right. then when she comes back, she hangs out with Joe and asks how he feels about babies. Oh, God. It's so uncomfortable. She does feel a little better. He says, like, you know, he likes babies. He'd like to have a lot of them. So it's going to be okay when she has his baby from kissing. This poor woman child this poor girl yeah she is a kid all right so point number four is new year's eve i've noted here at minute 73 of this movie share wears a mermaid costume yeah the first text i got was i think at what 45 minutes yeah around there i was just like i just kept checking the time my fiance and i were like when are the mermaids gonna show up we were just so sure i was certain that this was a thing where share was a secret mermaid and as like charlotte was like Going through puberty, she was going to, like, learn she's a mermaid, too. I really don't know where you got this idea. And Christina Ricci, being really into swimming, was like, yes, of course, because they're mermaids. My god. Okay, so it's New Year's, Cher's a mermaid, and they go to a costume party. Uh, Cher and Hoskins go to a costume party. The kids do not. Yes. And she is still, like, doing everything she can not to make long-term plans. Like, Hoskins is saying, like, hey, you know, I've saved up money to go to Cooperstown. I've always wanted to do that, see the Hall of Fame. Like, do you want to come with me this spring? And she's like, oh, I don't know. Like, we'll see if we're still a thing then. And Hoskins is like, we're going to be a thing. Why would we not be a thing then? And he starts asking her, like, you know, I've been thinking about proposing. And she's like, well, I would say no. Like, he keeps trying to move their relationship forward. And she's just refusing to get any more serious than they are. Yeah, it's very sad. And so when she's like, all right, do you want to, like, get out of here? He says no. He's like, I, if this is how you're going to treat me, like, I am not going to just go along with this. You know what I want. Like, I like that he stands up for himself there. Yeah. And while this is happening at home, Charlotte and her, like, five-year-old sister are getting drunk. Yes. I mean, to be fair, Christina Ricci is not supposed to be getting drunk. She's supposed to be drinking something else. Yes. But that kid wants... I just also can't picture a child enjoying wine that much, because when I tasted it for the first time, I almost vomited. When I taste wine now, I hate it half the time. 
I'm not a wine guy. Yeah. I enjoy wine, but yeah. All it takes is like half a glass of wine to give me a headache. But yeah, it's like Christina Ricci is just like holding this giant jug, like not even a bottle, a jug of wine just up to her mouth and just downing it. But anyway, uh, Cher has to get a ride home from someone else. So she gets a ride home from Joe, the sexy handyman. And then when they get back, Joe at first is just kind of like, all right, like get out of the car. But Cher doesn't move. So Joe is like, well, I guess I should like get the door for you, like be a gentleman. And then when he does that, Cher starts making out with him. Which Charlotte sees, and she gets mad about it because, of course, Joe is going to be her husband, even though she now knows she's not pregnant. You kissed him? You kissed him? How could you do that? How could you let her kiss you? Charlotte, for God's sakes, it was just a little New Year's Eve kiss. Well, you don't believe in New Year's. I know. But so that night, she decides to get revenge, and she dresses herself up in some of Cher's clothes and, like, puts on a bunch of makeup and stuff. And goes and finds Joe in the bell tower. And this is why I think Joe sleeps in the bell tower. Because why else is he there that late at night? Uh, that is a good point. Why is he in the bell tower? Maybe he's supposed to it ring... It doesn't make any the, sense. Maybe he's supposed to ring the New Year's bell. I guess. So she goes up there and they start making out. And then they have sex in the bell tower. Yeah. For real this time. Not just kisses. Like, for real sex in the bell tower. I hope since the last time they were in the bell tower together... Charlotte actually learned what sex is. I, I, she seems to have. Yeah, I, but like this could happen without her fully understanding what's going on. Yeah, I hope. Ugh. And I hope that is not what happened. Yeah, I hope the doctor told her what it is. Um, anyway, then, basically, as they are finishing up, one of the nuns finds Christina Ricci drowning because she was super drunk and then tried to swim. Yeah. So a decent chunk of the movie then is dealing with like, is Christina Ricci going to live? Which thank goodness she does. There's a while where I thought she was going to die. And that would have been a dark turn for this movie. Yeah. The movie really did not build up to a place where the child could die. But it felt like it was possible, which would have been a bummer. Because I think it is like a lovely little movie. And I don't think I would feel that way if they were like, and now a kid is dead. Yeah. Especially one that young. Just like the president. America's youth. It's gone. Oh, God. Yeah. So uh, luckily... Christina Ricci is brought to the hospital by the nuns, is saved, and just gets some hearing damage, I guess. Yeah. And in point number five, basically both of these couples wind up the way that they should. Yes. Uh, Bob Hoskins and Cher are still basically together. Cher keeps talking like she's going to leave, but like they're going on trips together. They all go to Cooperstown. It seems like they're in a good place. And Joe is no longer in town. He's now out west, and occasionally he and Charlotte exchange postcards, which feels fine. Yeah, and Charlotte replaces Catholicism with Greek mythology. Which feels healthier for her, too. Yes, I think that's a good twist. Also, Greek mythology, very okay with sex. That is true. (laughs) Arguably too okay with it. Also true. So, Will, after watching all this unfold, do you find the romance of mermaids believable? I find it occasionally unfortunate, but very believable. Yes, I think that is a good way of phrasing it. The Cher and Hoskins stuff is really good. And the Winona stuff feels very believable for a teenager in 1963. My biggest problem is Joe. And I'm like, what is this 26-year-old doing? Yeah, that's the most unbelievable thing is 26 is too old for this. I think the same story could have been told in a more believable way if Joe was like 18. Or even, like, like 19. Like, he's been out of high school for, like, two years. Yeah. But he's, like, still tooling around his town. I don't know. Maybe there's something in, in the novel that explains why all this is going on. 
So every week we rate the believability of a movie on a 10-point scale, one being the least, 10 being the most. Will, where would you rate Mermaids? I'm feeling like an 8. Like, I think it's mostly there. It's just how much Joe's age brings it down for me. That's exactly how I was feeling. Boom. Look at us. We're ending the year on the same page. Wow. It happens a lot, but not always. Yeah. I don't know that it did on always, actually. (laughs) Oh, my God. A movie that I definitely remember. Let's find out. Do you think that any of our Um, romantic leads is dateable? Oh, we did line up on Always. We both gave it a four. (laughs) That tracks. Um, Do I think any of our romantic leads is dateable? Bob Hoskins, 1,000%. Completely. Uh, And I would not date any of the others because I don't want to date a 15-year-old. I don't want to date Cher in this movie. She seems exhausting to date. And I don't want to date a dude who would date a 15-year-old. Yeah. We're really on the same page with this movie, I think. You know who I would date, Mark? Who? A mermaid. (laughs) Oh, my God. But there are none on offer in this movie. Do you think that either of these pairs will stay together? Well, one of them's apart, and that is good. I hope that Hoskins and Cher do. I, I feel like they probably will, and I hope they do. Yeah, I think so, but I'm not sure. It's very likely that they will not, unfortunately. Like, no matter how long that relationship goes on, it's so easy to imagine Cher's character just dropping it all one day and disappearing. <sighs> yeah. Now, Mark. Yes. If you had to pick one Bob Hoskins in this movie to date, which Bob Hoskins would it be? I do believe it would be Bob Hoskins. <laughs> Obviously. There's not that he's many other got, like, characters. Cute... And he's got this cute little, like, shoe shop in town, and he lives above it. Like, that's cool. There's not a lot of competition here. No. Now, Mark. Yes. Many of the films we've covered on this podcast have been adapted into stage musicals. Should there be a Mermaids musical? Not to be confused with a musical that had mermaids in it, which would be very different from this. I'm leaning towards no. I think it could be done, especially with the role of the music in the movie, like the 1960s music. Mm. But I don't know if it should be done. Yeah, this kind of thing can be done. You could imagine it having like either like this, the 60s kind of thing or maybe like a fun home kind of vibe. But yeah, I think it could work. I don't know that I would like demand it happen. Yeah. If you want a feel of a Mermaid's musical, just watch the music video for the Shoop Shoop song, which features Cher, Christina Ricci, and Winona Ryder. I loved when that just like blasted during the credits. <laughs> They're all in the music video. It played on MTV. I might go watch it. I think all right. that's about it for Mermaid's. Okay, Mark, you know what's happening next week? I know. And We're I'm going over the hedge. about it. Going back to DreamWorks. Uh, yeah, we'll be doing our top 10 lists for 2021 and also talking about the romance of DreamWorks' newspaper comic adaptation, Over the Hedge. Oof. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts to help other people find the show. Last question, what is the best piece of dating advice we got from mermaids? Be direct about what you want. Um, It works out great throughout this movie. It works out when Cher wants sex, and Bob Hoskins is like, yes, please. And ultimately, it works out to a certain extent when Hoskins is clear about, like, I want this relationship to move forward. Like, he's very clear that he can't keep going on the way that it had been going on. And I really respect him for that. My advice? Be Bob Hoskins. And if you can't do that, sorry. I mean, there are currently zero people on the planet who are Bob Hoskins. I know. And maybe love is dead, Will. Oh, no. But that's what we're here to discover. Uh, Okay. No, I just... Happy New Year. (laughs) Oh, God. I forgot he was dead. That's so sad. Yeah. 
but also that's the best piece of advice I got from this movie. All right, I can live with that. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about movies. Romance? Romance. Wow. My brain is dead. All right, bye! Bye! (laughs)